0: Welcome to May I Inquire, the Michael Silver podcast. As you can probably guess from the title, I am your host, Michael Silver. I'm an attorney and a partner at Shutts & Bowen, a full-service business law firm with offices throughout Florida. May I Inquire is my chance to have conversations with thought leaders of different backgrounds and across various industries. I'll be talking to my guests about many things, but mainly law, leadership, and life. And more specifically, how the law impacts their professional and personal lives. My guest on this episode of The podcast is Nicole Zuoni. Nicole is Executive Vice President, Chief Legal Officer, and Chief People Officer of Ultimate Medical Academy, a national nonprofit healthcare educational institution. For nearly three decades, UMA has offered content-rich, interactive online courses to students across the nation, as well as campus-based training to students at its Tampa Bay campus. Nicole leads UMA's legal and people teams, she provides a broad range of legal advice and oversees corporate governance matters, and she advances the development of UMA's culture and its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Nicole graduated from Harvard and attended law school at Georgetown, and she is also a published children's book author. Nicole Anzoni, welcome to May I Inquire. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. Let's set the stage with the discussion about UMA. First of all, tell us what UMA really is. Sure. Well, Ultimate
1: Medical Academy was established approximately 30 years ago, um, and we are an online, not-for-profit, accredited educational institution, and our mission is to equip and empower students to excel in the allied health professions. What do you mean by allied health professions? So, when people think of healthcare, I think people often, rightly so, think of doctors, nurses, doctors' offices, hospitals. And it takes a lot for those types of organizations to work and to run smoothly. And the allied health professions kind of provide that foundation from which larger institutions like hospitals and doctors' offices can function and allows doctors, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, to do their work. So Allied Health for us are the medical billing and coding specialists, the medical assistants, the pharmacy technicians who provide that support that keeps the trains
0: running. They make the system go. They do, yes. You mentioned you've had 72,000 students come through UMA. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about who those people are, what your typical student looks like, um, where they come from?
1: our students are usually adult learners who are transitioning to a career in the allied health professions. So our typical student is often a woman um, in her thirties, managing and balancing a family, job responsibilities, as well as school, looking to make this transition into the growing healthcare field, again, with our focus being on the allied health professions.
0: How does UMA work with employers in the healthcare fields to to make sure that when your students graduate, that they're going out into the workforce and putting that education that UMA has given them, putting that to work?
1: So this is, I think, a real differentiator for UMA. This is where I think we go from being more than just a school UMA is committed to our students. So I wanted to mention our kind of ethos of care and that it starts really early on in the student's journey. And when they are ready to graduate and go out into their their profession, that they've joined our school um, to help them make this transition, we're there to help them. And our career services team, which is what we call um, that department, actively works with healthcare employers to know their current and future talent needs. So we're working with Walgreens, with CVS, with PSYOX, with other companies like that who are dealing with a shortage of healthcare workers. And we need to know what they need. What does their talent need to look like? And our career services team in combination with our education department works to provide the curriculum and the skills and experiences that those allied health healthcare providers will need in their talent. We have hundreds of people dedicated to getting our team members jobs and knowing that the way that we have equipped them, the way that we have educated them and provided them experiences
0: will fit with the needs of employers today and in the future. UMA is a nonprofit institution. Mm-hmm. So how does UMA generate the revenue to fund its education, to fund its um, career services, mm-hmm. to do all the different things UMA does to train, equip, employ people in the allied healthcare fields? Where does the money come from?
1: <laughs> well, we have a number of revenue sources, but our primary one is through uh, the Title IV funding program from the U.S. government. Um, those are things like Pell grants um, that you probably heard of, and a lot of our population uh, qualifies for those types of grants. And so um, our revenues come from the federal government, and because of that, uh, we are highly regulated, and we take that responsibility very seriously. You know, my my title is chief legal officer as well as chief people officer, and. Um, we are very diligent in our compliance efforts because the government is entrusting us with their funds. And so they expect certain behaviors, they expect certain outcomes, not just at the federal level, but at the state level and with our accreditor. Um, And we work very hard and we're very pleased that uh, we meet those benchmarks that are required of us to accept those types of funds. Um, Our placement rates, meaning where we place our students in jobs, is over 70% per program.
0: We're very proud of that. You mentioned earlier, Nicole, that your students may have transportation issues, wardrobe issues. I wonder if you could expound on that a little bit and explain what some of the issues these students are dealing with um, and, and how UMA helps with that so that we have a better understanding of, of who these people are, who you're training, educating, and putting out into the workforce. Sure.
1: Our students are typically um, women in their 30s who are balancing family responsibilities, a job, as well as school. And as we know, as people with families, things come up. And so oftentimes our students might not have access to transportation that will help them get from point A to point B. And point A might be their home and point B might be the interview that's going to get them their job that is going to help them transition to their next, um, position and career. So we have a partnership with Uber to help get our students, um, from point A to point B, um, wardrobe. We have students, um, in our Clearwater, uh, campus on our Clearwater campus. And we have, um, basically a department store where they can go and get professional level clothes and shop. And we have lots of very stylish people on our team who love to help ensure that our students feel confident and wardrobe helps with that. Um, care, another issue that our students deal with as many people do. We try to match the needs of our students with some of the social services in their areas so that they can access you know, child care, they can access um, housing opportunities um, to ensure that they have those, you know, basic needs met so they can focus on their responsibilities with their families, their jobs, and their school. Um, And again, we think that that is very resonant with not only our students, but our team members really like that we help so much that we walk the walk of making care the other half of education.
0: Nicole, you mentioned that that resonates with your team members. I'll, I'll tell you, just sitting here listening to you talk about it, it resonates with me in terms of that it's more than education that you all are giving. And also to understand what your students um, have to deal with, what their challenges are, and what you are working with them to help them uh, meet those challenges and and get to the next level in their careers, I think puts a human story behind um, what you all are doing at UMA. So thank you for sharing that.
1: No, thank you. Uh, we, we know that each individual comes with their own story and one size is not going to fit all. So we try to find ways to support the whole learner, the whole student. And hopefully that leads to outcomes that not only benefit that student, but his or her family and the communities in which they live and serve. So we, We like it and our team members like it. And, um, you know, I've worked with UMA for over 11 years and I am, um, I'm honored every day to do this work. You know, I, I came from law firm life like you did and I loved doing that work and I know we'll talk about that, but this is a a different level of, um, engagement and purpose that I'm very grateful to have the
0: opportunity to engage in. I bet. I bet. Prior to the pandemic, uh, UMA had a in-person training as well as an online education model. Mm -hmm. Has that changed at all as a result of the pandemic?
1: So a little bit, but not much. We are very grateful that we did not need to transition to becoming an emergency online um, education provider. We've been doing that for over a decade and so our students were able to seamlessly move forward with their coursework um, because it had been predominantly online. Our Clearwater campus does and continues to have programs that are offered on that campus. We also now offer those in a hybrid capacity as well. So that's the primary change as it relates to our 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 model and the way that we educate our students. But again, during the pandemic, you you just saw people you know try and take. PowerPoints that they would give in a live setting and put it online. And it's just, that's not education. That's just an emergency response. And we were, again, very grateful that we've been
0: doing online education for over a decade. You've had an online model for, for some time. Did that have any impact on how you were able to um, accommodate your staff during the pandemic? So,
1: While we did not have remote work prior to the pandemic, we became a completely remote workforce on March 17th, 2020, where our president, who I think in a really bold, courageous move, said our values say that we must commit to team member success. This virus is dangerous to team members, and I don't know how to keep them safe other than to send them home. So on March 17th, we had a massive effort and put all of our team members uh, in a remote space, their homes. And so I remember our president saying, I'm, I'm really scared. All of our assets, our people, our computers, everything just went in 1,500 plus different directions. And we didn't know what was going to happen. But I think that that brave move undergirded by just following our values has paid off in terms of our employee retention, in terms of our operational um, efforts being able to continue so that we can continue to serve our students in furtherance of their careers. So while we weren't remote, we sure are
0: now. Do you think that UMA and its staff recognized or realized any benefits by going to a fully remote model as a result of the pandemic?
1: I do I you, think that can you explain those Sure I think that our team members appreciated the trust that we placed in them to be able to work from home the flexibility that allowed them to live their lives and take care of the responsibilities that they had which you know the pandemic wasn't so far away but a lot of us had to deal with kids who weren't in school. And being able to work from home and trying to balance those types of responsibilities, I think was very much appreciated by our team members. But we also learned that people like to be together sometimes too. And so we are trying to be more purposeful as we slowly reopen our offices um, about why we gather. Why do we come together in a space? And it might not be to work every day. It might
0: be to learn, to train, to get inspired, before talking about your current roles at UMA, I'd like to talk to you about your path to UMA. You're a Harvard graduate, and I wanted to ask, what's the Harvard experience like? <laughs> um, well, I grew up in the shadows of Harvard
1: in a, uh, oh my gosh, my Boston accent just came out there, in a in, in a blue-collar suburb of Massachusetts called Revere. And I think I was prepared for the Harvard experience uh, from an academic Um perspective. It is, it's a lot to handle all the history, all of the, you know, the magnitude of things that have gone on there and through there. Um, And I think that that was probably um, one of the more challenging things for me to um, experience. Did you go straight to law school out of college? I didn't. I worked in Massachusetts state government in a few positions, I believe I took three years off in between to work, and that was really fun. I've always liked um, politics, and politics in Massachusetts is particularly fun. Um, You know, I I think I got a, a bloody nose here or there in my time, but I think that that experience was really helpful in understanding how the law plays into the legislative work and some of the other regulatory work that I was doing prior to law school. It wasn't completely foreign to me as I
0: entered law school. Nicole, so what led you ultimately to going to law school?
1: (laughs) Well, I probably have a story like many of your listeners have, which is I have an aunt who's actually retiring next month who, um, like many of our students, um, while not in the allied health space, but she was working at Massachusetts General Hospital during the day. And at night she was going to Suffolk law school and she lived with us, with my parents and my grandmother and my sisters and me. And I just thought she was the coolest. And so she inspired me to go to law school. And then, you know, as I, as I proceeded through my academic career, I realized that like, it just fits my personality. You know, I'm detail oriented. I like collaboration. So I'm a corporate lawyer. Consensus might as well be my middle name. And So it would all kind of fit.
0: After law school, I know you practiced corporate law at two very large prominent law firms in New York. What was that experience like being in one of the biggest financial centers in the world working at very large law firms?
1: So again, I'm sure like many of your listeners, I love to work. And so working at... You might
0: be being too presumptuous about our <laughs> listeners, but that's fine.
1: Um, well, I my first law firm, Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, I did a lot of securities and mergers and acquisitions work. And, you know, those are big deals that require a lot of late nights. And um, I really just enjoyed it. And I made very good friends. I learned a lot. Um about myself, about the law. And I, I just really enjoyed the requirements of rigor that the law firm um, just expected of everybody. And from Morgan Lewis, I moved on to Epstein, Becker & Green, um, where I continued to practice and do mergers and acquisitions and a little bit more employment law, which was fun. Um, but it it's it's still always a lot of work. You know, any deal or any case... It can be a large amount of money involved or a small amount of money involved. It's usually pretty much the same in terms of what lawyers have to do. Look, it's a lot of work. But as I mentioned, why did I go to law school? Well, it fits my personality and I really like to work.
0: (laughs) You're a sick, sick person. I know,
1: I know, I know. But I'm trying to find more balance.
0: So you enjoyed these jobs and the rigor and the work, but you left. So what led to your transition from private practice mm-hmm. in large law firms to an in-house legal position?
1: So one of the partners who I worked with at Epstein, Becker & Green um, founded UMA. And um, it was a much smaller organization back then. And over time, I I joined UMA as part of the in-house legal team. And, you know, if I think about what I liked about um, doing transactional work is I liked the beginning and I liked the end, right? That there there were bookends. But then you never knew what happened at the end of the story. You got your closing binder and then you never knew what happened when the new company tried to get integrated into the purchaser. Did the deal really work? Did it work? And I realized that, I kind of wanted to see how the story played out. And so moving to an in-house role allowed me to see that there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that happens in a company, in an organization, whether it's involved in a transaction or not.
0: Since you joined UMA in 2010, you've ascended to uh, several roles of increasing responsibility, both with legal aspects as well as non-legal aspects. I want to talk to you about those, but I'm I'm interested to know what you find the, the biggest difference to be between being a, a private practice lawyer and an in-house lawyer. I know when you're in private practice, you have many different clients at any one time. You're in-house, you have one client. So I'd like to know how you view the difference and how that transition went for you.
1: That's a great question. So I think that In private practice, lawyers get a lot of fulfillment in being right and in winning and in being the doer of all of the work that is required to uh, close that deal, win that case, whatever the matter may be. When you're an in-house attorney, I think that you have to do more work in terms of understanding the business holistically and, and understanding that you do have one client at the end of the day, right? And our rules of professional responsibilities say we have one client, yet you have a lot of constituents as an in-house attorney. You have lots of parts of the business, all of the people who want to get things done their way. And you have to sometimes say no, but as I said, you know, I really love consensus. So finding a way to yes, has often been what I find most rewarding about that transition. It's not about winning. Um, It's not about being right. It's about getting to the best results for my end client, which is UMA. Um, So I, I think that it's a really fun way to, again, access parts of our legal brains that exist. We just don't get to have them displayed as often in private practice as we do, I think, in, in-house. I don't know if that resonates with you, Michael. I don't know that anything
0: resonates with me. So.
1: <laughs> well, I think another thing though, in, in terms of, you know, I, I had this um, conversation with my friends who are partners at law firms, right. Who were in my uh, class or at my law firms. And they continue to be partners at law firms when I think it was the Sheryl Sandberg book came out about lean in and, you know, being empowered to um, set boundaries and to uh, make sure that you're taking care of yourself as well as, you know, your job responsibilities. And I remember that my law firm partner friends said, yeah, she can do that because she's expecting that her lawyers that she calls on, you know, at eight o'clock at night to have something next morning are on. So I hear that. I appreciate that. I know that happens. But I think as an in-house lawyer, I also have the opportunity to not do that, to try to help my colleagues who are uh, counsel that we will utilize, including our friends at and bowen who have done great work for us. Um, I think that we have, as in-house lawyers, a a responsibility to those of our colleagues who are in private practice to not have everything be a fire drill. So I hope that, I hope that the council that work with me (laughs) feel that I try to do this, um, more often than not. But I do think that as we look at the legal profession, um, we talked about burnout in the healthcare, um, field, it certainly can happen, and it does happen in the legal field. And we lose a lot of people. We lose people, and our retention issues can be can be better.
0: Nicole, you became both the chief legal officer and the chief people officer at UMA in early 2021. I want to talk to you about both of those roles first. Since I'm a lawyer, I'm going to ask about the lawyer role mm-hmm. and uh, your service as chief legal officer you're the head lawyer at UMA mm-hmm. but that also means you're an executive do you consider or view that position to be more as a lawyer or as an executive a business person
1: i would say that i operate um as an executive who everyone knows wears a legal hat at all times um and so That does mean that when we have business matters that come up, that um, my colleagues who are also executives know that I will likely have some questions, some interest in whatever the um, project or objective that um, we're working on may be, but my goal is not to say no My my goal is not to be an obstacle to progress of the organization. It is to find a way that reduces risk for the organization and yet allows the organization to meet its goals in service of our students, graduates, and our team members.
0: How do you decide in overseeing the legal department but also being an executive, how do you decide what needs to be passed up to you to decide from the lawyers who work for you. And by the same token, how do you decide what needs to be advanced from you to UMA's president or its board of trustees? Mm
1: -hmm. I'm very lucky to have a very strong team. And I have a strong team of people who have been with the organization for a long time. And so we have a good working relationship. They know me, they know what I'm going to want to see, and they know what I want them to advance. So I often say to folks who first start working with me or who are younger attorneys, I don't need you to know every answer, but I need you to move the ball down the field as far as you can. If you can't get it across the goal line, that's totally fine. Totally fine. That's when you come to me. Um, And that's worked out really well in terms of empowering team members to do the work that they can do before asking for help. I don't think that I micromanage. Um, That's a challenge for any lawyer right? I
0: Lawyers don't like to give up control. No.
1: So the transition then became to working with people and ensuring that they were doing the work that was appropriate to them, that was going to be most impactful to the organization. Um, So I think that um, the transition to that type of executive work versus uh, legal is is tough at first, but then it's really, really fun. And so that's not an exact thing. I don't have like a, Oh, well it's, you know, a, any contract over $250,000 has to come to me or, you know, any um, litigation that's going to settle for more than like, I don't have those standards. Um, I probably should. And you're probably, uh, you know, making me uh, create some work for myself here, but I think that the bottom line for our team is there's a tremendous amount of trust in integrity
0: and in capabilities. Working as a lawyer for UMA, you are at an intersection of both the law and healthcare, and those fields often intersect, and they're both rapidly changing. What do you think the emerging trends will be at the intersection of law and healthcare?
1: In, in the wake of the pandemic... I think that there are issues as it relates to healthcare privacy choices as it relates to the workplace, as it relates to one's own health status. Um, I think that there are uh, overall privacy and data privacy issues that emerge from um, not just COVID, but our technological advances that healthcare certainly uh, is involved with, that will continue. I think that the responsibility of the legal field in um, as it relates to healthcare is similar to what I talked about as it relates to UMA, which is finding a way through this maze. Yes, things must be protected. Yes, people must be able to feel safe about their data. People must be able to make decisions that are right for them. Employers must be able to um, create workspaces that are safe and yet productive. And I think that the legal profession, and that's where I'm going to talk from, right, with that hat on, um, has an opportunity to thread the needle on all of those things. Um, But I, I think that our profession is particularly skilled at finding a way through the maze. And so
0: I would look to our legal colleagues. You are also the chief people officer at UMA. Mm -hmm. What is that?
1: (laughs) Well, that is, I think probably my greatest responsibility and honor in that I am, um, dedicated to creating an environment where our team members feel heard, valued, respected, and Um, able to grow in a way that they feel that they have done something valuable with that time and look back with appreciation and fondness for the workplace that is UMA. Um, Being the chief people officer, yes, it relates to people, but it also, as I said, is about creating an atmosphere an environment, a culture of what are the norms to work here? What do we expect? What do we not tolerate? Um, what if you work for UMA, should you know is what will be an outcome and it's consistent. People are um, able to see from point A to point B, this is where their career will grow. Um, And that culture driving is really fun and really hard. Um, And I think that that creates a lot of excitement for me. But when you're dealing with humans, it can get really challenging. Sticky. <laughs> it can get sticky. Yeah,
0: we've talked about culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. And we've talked about uh, work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Those are a lot of ingredients. How do you make sure that you're putting those ingredients together in such a way that results in not just a great culture, but also that you see advances in the overall mission of UMA?
1: So I think that that work starts with living our values. So we have a number of core values, as I know lots of organizations do. um, And we look at those regularly to ensure that we're living up to them. And so I think having a strong set of core values that is a living, breathing document, It's not just something that you post to the wall and people read every once in a while. I mentioned our president during the time of COVID, he made an easy decision to send everybody home because he looked at the value, commit to team member success. We do that constantly. Do we always get it right? Nope. But I'm very proud of the way that we try to live our values every day and create that culture of care that, um, We want to resonate not only for our students, but the communities that we live in here in Tampa and we serve. And there's no better way that we do that than treating our team members with care.
0: I want to shift gears a a little bit. We've talked about the law. We've talked about your leadership roles. Let's talk about life a little bit. You're a mom. I am. I'm a dad. Uh, You have a daughter and a son. I know it's a challenge in private practice, and I'm sure you've seen this too, How do you balance your commitments to your job, your career, UMA, and to your family?
1: So, I was the beneficiary of our decision to become a remote, flexible work organization. Um, I'm divorced, and prior to um, my divorce, my partner was a stay-at-home mom. And so all of the child care was not something that um, I necessarily like quote unquote worried about. It's not that I didn't do it. I just didn't have to worry about it because I had a partner who um, was, was capable. Being a single parent, it's much more difficult. And I think it would continue to be difficult, but for UMA's decision to become a flexible workplace and um, that flexibility and that trust of, well, we know you're going to get your work done. It just doesn't have to be between these set hours has been very, very helpful and meaningful. And actually, the pandemic has created, I think, an environment that has allowed my children and me to become even closer and um, um, better communicators, better um, better partners in our life together as we work through all of the things that we all need to get done, whether it's school, work, extracurriculars, eating, whatever it may be. Um, So tightrope walkers, they don't make big adjustments when they're on the tightrope because if you do that, you're likely going to fall. So I try not to make major adjustments as it relates to finding a balance in life. I try to make the tiny ones on the tweaks, the tweaks on a day to day, week to week basis that allows me to look at myself at the end of the week in the mirror and say, you did well by Charlotte, your daughter, you did well by Teddy, you did well by UMA, you did well by yourself. Do I get to say that every week? Nope. But that's the goal. Um, And if I didn't, what are the things that I can improve on?
0: We've talked about work-life balance. We've talked about your family Where did you find the time to write a children's book and tell us a little bit about it? Sure.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So um, I used to live in New York. I lived um, on Staten Island and my apartment overlooked New York Harbor. And when Charlotte, my daughter, was a baby, she often, as babies do, had a hard time falling asleep. And so we would go out to the balcony in my apartment and we would look out at New York Harbor, which is pretty busy and pretty fun. And so one day on a flight from New York to Tampa to come to UMA, um, I wrote a poem about what we saw in New York Harbor that would help calm Charlotte down. And I worked with an illustrator who was excellent um, and created a book about the stories that Charlotte and I would see as we looked out into busy New York Harbor, as I tried to get her to calm down.
0: And it is a published book, right? It it is. And what is is it called?
1: It's called when I look out my window.
0: And are there any future books on the horizon?
1: Well, her brother, Teddy feels very slighted that there is no book for him. So, uh, I have a feeling that
0: something will emerge from that, uh, request Nicole, thank you for for joining me on the podcast, uh, as we do with all of our guests. We'll be making a charitable donation uh, in your name. So who are we contributing to? And why don't you tell us why that organization is important to you? Super.
1: First, I want to thank you, Michael, for having this podcast. I think it is a really unique and yet effective way to communicate about all sorts of issues that um, our community and our profession face. And Um, I think that you've done a great job and I, I, I look forward to, to listening to the podcast going forward. Um, I would like to make the donation in memory of a UMA team member. Her name was Ilyasha Hood. Uh, she worked, uh, on my team for a number of years in the people and culture function. Um, but her many years were cut short at age 28 by breast cancer. She was a tremendous advocate for um, cancer awareness. We did the um, making strides walk for breast cancer awareness here in Tampa. We had the largest team in the nation. Um, Unfortunately, Ilyasha lost her battle last year um, and her homegoing service was, one of the more emotional events I've ever attended. Um, but she would want us to, to go on and keep keep working to ensure that people did not have the same outcome as she did. So I would be most grateful uh, if if we could make a contribution in memory of Ilyasha Hood to the American Cancer Society.
0: We will be more than glad to do that. And, and thank you for telling us about her and her story and the impact she had on you. Nicole? Thank you. I think we've reached the end. I want to thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of May I Inquire. I hope you'll join me for future conversations. For more information about Schutz & Bowen, please visit us online at Schutz.com. I'm Michael Silver. Thanks for listening. This podcast should not be construed as legal advice and is intended for general informational or educational purposes only. Its distribution and receipt does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with and bowen The views set forth in this podcast are the personal views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of and bowen